Everyone, appreciate you taking the time out today to join us. Just as an intro, we launched the deal series on the future of work approximately three weeks ago. In our first discussion, we had Dr. John Vensel, the Chief Executive Officer from Adcorp, join us. And we looked at the topic, uh, is the traditional staffing model dead? And uh, John provided us with some fantastic insights into this topic. If you missed it, please, you can access the session online. And what I'll do a little bit later is I'll actually post the link to that session on the chat so that you don't miss that really interesting session by John. And then today in the second of the series, we're looking at the role that technology is playing in the changing world of work. And uh, in terms of that, we're joined by co-founder and our CEO of Deal, Alex Boaziz. Alex is going to be sharing with us really an amazing story of Deal and pretty much how him and a team of people launched you know, $1.25 billion business during a pandemic. Equally important, I think, we'll be discussing the role that technology and more specifically platforms are playing in impacting global talent pools and employability. Once again, uh, welcome to Colin, who's going to take us through the session, facilitate, make sure that all the right questions get asked and answered. And uh, once again, thank you guys for joining us. I uh, hope you enjoy it. Over to you, Colin. Thank you very much, Lawrence. Thank you very much. And uh, Alex, very warm welcome to you. It's a great honor to actually have you on. Serial entrepreneur and doing incredibly well with Deal, but I'm obviously getting ahead of myself. Let's just start with the question that we asked. I said, how do you build a $1.25 billion business? I asked that last month. It's probably inaccurate now. It's probably already worth $1.5 billion. But when I was looking at the Deal story at a, at a high level and researching for this, I thought this should be a fascinating discussion because if I consider what you've done over the last two years and the amount of learnings that others can take from it, whether they're startups, whether they're venture capitalists, whether they're actually working in the corporate environment um, and they want to actually go and uh, mimic some of the procedures that you've done, it would be just a phenomenal, phenomenal call. So Alex Boaziz, a very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here with you today. And well, you know, it's uh, easy to look back now and say, oh yeah, we this right and this right. But I think there was a lot of learnings. You know, I think I could talk for hours about this. So I'm sure we can dive into very specifics, but uh, you know, we're only at the very beginning of the company. We've been very lucky. We have this, <clears throat> we analyze and we saw a problem that, that we felt very close to, right? Me and Shro and the whole team were all a bunch of international people. You know, I'm from France originally. She's from China originally. We grew up in totally different cultures and educations. And uh, we realized really early on that talent is everywhere. And, you know, the best person in the world to work for us and with us might be in Joburg or they might be in Paris or they might be in London. And we wanted to make it really easy for people to work together. So I think, you know, the, the way we look at it is, uh, we we had very very strong opinions about uh, how we think the world uh, will develop and the, how do we think the world of work will change, and then we just put a lot of grit, sweat, and tears into building something to to the scale that it is today. And you combine all of the all of that with a little bit of luck, uh, that's how you build a company like Deal. Let, let's start with exactly what Let's Deal is, and I think it's important for context because then that will lead into you know your background and the approach that you guys have taken. What what does Deal actually do? On principle, Deal is a pretty simple company, right? What we do is we help companies hire and work with anyone, anywhere. So traditionally as a business, let's say you're a company in South Africa and you really want to work with that person in the United States or in Colombia, for example. Most companies today, the only way for them to hire people around the world has always been, we'll set up a company locally and hire those people and you know set up payroll and HR and accounting and everything. And I mean, you know, having opened quite a few companies and myself, uh, I know how painful it can be, specifically in larger organizations, how long it can be and the experience that you're giving and the overhead that you bring yourself into. So what we do at Deal is we enable you to work with someone in another country in a couple of clicks and we take care of everything, all the back of all end-to-end from localized contract to invoices to payroll, we do everything. So you want to hire someone in Colombia as an independent contractor, we make that really easy. You want to hire someone in the United States as a full-time employee and give them access to benefits of 401k we make that easy as well. So we're a single platform for any hire that's non-local. It sounds, as you explain it, kind of obvious. This is the sort of thing that should have been around uh, for years and years. But as far as I'm aware, you're doing something fairly unique here. There definitely was a couple of companies doing it one way or another, or 
you know, the agency model and DPOs, right, where suddenly you hire a lot of people in the Philippines and they put them under that entity. That always kind of was there. I think uh, th there's been a couple shifts in how the word thinks, the word of work thinks that re-triggered really the need for a solution. Like, you know, one of the things we're really, really good at and one of the things we're changing is the employee experience, right? The idea that you can start working with someone give them an employment contract, get them ready in like a couple of clicks and a couple of buttons and really, really give them a great experience. It's completely new. While a lot of, even in the, in the Valley, right? When I used to talk to investors and I used to tell them, you know, I have a teammate in Ukraine. He's like one of the best engineers in the world. And you cut half of what you're paying or one third of what you're paying in San Francisco, right? Which is, by the way, one of, one of the bigger drivers also of, of deal. The fact that generally in those clusters like San Francisco and New York, salaries have gone so high that it's really, really hard to compete on the job market, right? And on the marketplace. But, you know, most of those companies, use, most of those investors, those people used to refer to my teammates as like my offshore team, right? Or my outsourced team. And that always kind of bothered me, right? Like it's not because they're not in San Francisco that they're just not my teammate and they're not part of my team. And that has completely changed, right? With the pandemic, with people relocating, with the way the world has like fought through the idea that it's not because you're not in my office that you're not my direct teammate that has completely changed the perception and the perspective of everyone on that and that has really triggered for really something that's new which is how do we give our international team an amazing experience that's as quality as you know what we give our local team and, and that is really something that i'd say we've changed in the market how did you um you know come up with the idea so obviously most people know the story for uber and they're in this uh Actually, from your neck of the woods, your background, they're in this coffee shop after a conference in Paris and it's raining and they can't get a taxi. And obviously the rest is history. How did you guys come up with the idea for Deal? It was a little less uh, sexy than an Uber. Let's say it's not we woke up one day and we said we want to build Deal. I think it was uh, the accumulation of a lot of personal experiences. So you know, I'm originally from France. I lived and grew up in Paris, but then I moved to the UK, to Israel, to the US, to like lots of different countries. And I went to an international school. I've been... You know, one of the people that lived through, hey, my friend is one of the most amazing engineers, but he's back in Albania and earning $1,000 a month while my friend from MIT is in San Francisco and job hopping from Twitter to Google to Facebook, taking a 20% increase every, every year, right? Every six months. And for me, it was crazy. It's like the, the amounts of money that are being spent on talent in geos versus others didn't make any sense, right? And luckily for me, my, my, my co-founder, so she's originally Chinese. We met at, at, at MIT at school together as well. And she kind of had a similar experience when she went back to China to build her first business. And for us, it was always very obvious. And then if you add to that, the fact that when I started my first company, so I, I had a couple of ventures before deal and you know, some of them went well, some of them went pretty bad. But the common ground was that uh, all of them were bootstrapped, right? And I never fundraised money. And when I went back at the time it was to Israel, uh, the salaries of engineers is just so expensive, right? I just couldn't afford to work with anyone or to hire anyone at the time. So I directly was drawn into hiring in um, the Ukraine or in India to have the talent I could afford and start working with them. And I remember like, giving them those like contracts that were I knew were bad off the shelf template didn't work for Ukraine I remember looking at and you know I hope you never have to go through that but the terrible banking UI in in of that Israeli little bank that like I had to press buttons I didn't know where was the money when it was arriving there's so many things that were showing me like you're not giving a good experience to your team you're not making this compliant and yeah, you know, it's not, uh, again, the conclusion of all of this was for me, hey, you've seen talent, you know that talent is everywhere. You, saw, you see how bad the experience is and how well the processes are done to make this, this type of hires. Let's kind of fix that. So I didn't wake up in Paris one day and say, let's do it. I saw it throughout my few years of my life as an entrepreneur. So then you've, you've had the idea, you've experienced it. You know, how long did you allow it to fester and bug you before you sort of made a decision that you really wanted to tackle this and start, you know, work with your co-founder and uh, attempt to develop uh, what is now Deal? Yeah, you know, one of the things that we're really good at, and you know, so you're asking me, how do you build a fast-growing and high-growth business? And that ties back into that is we're very decisive. So, you know, Shroy and I are sometimes uh, not in the best way, but we, you know, we make decisions really fast and we follow through with them and uh, execute as much as we can. So, you know, we saw that as an opportunity in November 2018. We we're like, there's something there. Uh, we should dive into it deeper. January 2019, we were in San Francisco as part of an accelerator program called the Y Combinator, starting to build it. Right. So usually, my way of thinking about entrepreneurship is, uh, I think I don't remember who exactly, but someone gave me that advice a couple a couple of years ago. When you build products and startups, you just throw a lot of things on the wall. And eventually you see what sticks. 
Um, so I'm very much into that mindset. I threw a lot of balls on the wall and eventually one of them stuck and, and that was the, so, uh, yeah, we just literally started putting the night we had the idea and then started building. Did you start building immediately in, in November or really was it just putting your ideas together and, and doing research and then putting applications into Y Combinator to try to, uh, you know, be accepted? We started building Y Combinator regardless. I think one of the things I've learned, so my, one of the first companies I built, you know, I built a product for about a year and a half, two years. Uh, that's actually one of the longest products I've ever worked on. And I kind of lied to myself into thinking like there is something like keep building, keep trying, etc. You'll get to that like product eventually will work. And what I realized is that now you want to see if something works, just like get on with it, try try to build it and don't wait for things to happen, right? Like put it in front of people, see what their reaction is, how should you improve it, how should you change it and just be really fast on your feet. Because if you think about what how we started with Deal versus where it is today, right? From a process, from a compliance standpoint, from all the things that we do, uh, there's a huge gap, right? And even there's a gap in how I was thinking about the product and how I saw it evolving, right? So I usually say just build and do things in parallel, right? Apply to YC parallel. Actually, if you have traction, right? If some people care about your product, you're much more likely to eventually receive funding or get into a program like Y Combinator, right? So waiting for those things is definitely not the right thing to do. How did you um, get into that, you know, build? What sort of team did you have to, you know, muster up? And then what were the steps that you took so that you had the clarity of what that sort of first beta demo prototype, whatever you were going to call it, was going to be? Yeah, I mean, you know, just small caveat that applies, in my opinion, to software, right? To SaaS, right? If you're building something super complex, high technology, then of course you need a lot more time into thinking how you're going to build things. Uh, for our team, from the very get go, was uh, actually remote and distributed. So, you know, we got we had um, a couple engineers in Ukraine, uh, first content marketer in Serbia, and then myself and Shro. So um, it was, you know, the core team was very tiny. I think. It's super important to be very lean. I mean, you should always be lean, but especially at this stage where uh, you've got people, most of the people that you have at that time are usually here for you more than for the product. You don't really have anything. <laughs> so they, they think you're going to build something great and they want to be working with you. Couple of good engineers, one or two person to help you on the marketing and sales guys. And then, yeah, this is the time where as a founder, you don't sleep very much because you're always to don't sleep very much anyway. But at that specific time, a lot of those things, rest on your shoulder because you are the one that needs to figure out am I investing my time and my team's time in the right places. How did you um, go about finding the people? I mean, I guess a lot of people that are sitting in the US, the UK, here, South Africa, you know, you're mentioning places like the Ukraine and Serbia, you could think of India and lots of other locations, low cost. How did you decide on these geographies and find the sort of people and get comfortable they were of the quality that you needed? Well, you know, I wouldn't say low cost. Some of those guys are in a decent amount of money uh, based on their skills and where they are, um, to be honest. So we don't decide on location, actually. We don't care about location because as, you know, it is what we do as a company, but we also are, you know, my, my vision of this is whether you're in Zimbabwe or in the Bahamas, if you're the right person to work with us for whatever job we have, I want you to work with us, right? And I want to make that work. So um, how do we find people? You know, we have the luxury of having built a pretty solid brand in this space. So we do get like a decent amount of organic people working with us. We do work with external recruiters that, uh, you know, have this quite a few external recruiters that have started to break down their traditional barriers of hiring and start thinking about talent by role and by skills rather than location. So that has been quite helpful. And generally, yeah, we, we, we reach out to people, right? When we think you're the right person, we'll, we do, you know, our recruiting team, which is not that big today. Uh, we ping people and we try to work with them and ask them to to join us regardless of their location. So you then got together with Y Combinator. I think most people know the, the sort of Y Combinator model of the, the support that they give. What was the biggest factor that you found that they were, you know, most helpful? Where was it that they really were able to, to give you a kickstart? Hmm. I think there's quite a few things. First, you know, I had never raised money before. Yeah, I did grow in an environment of venture capital throughout my years as, as early on. But actually, you know, I was a French guy in Israel. So the de facto of countries like Israel, France, is that you, the people usually invest in people they understand and they, you know, they've seen a model that they can, a pattern that they can replicate. So, you know, a French guy in Israel at that time, there was no pattern for anyone to look at and think this guy might be successful or not. So, you know, access to venture capital was something I didn't have and something that, uh, Definitely YC opened up for us, right? When we moved to, to the Valley, we didn't have a lot of connections. We didn't know a lot of people. Our network was not that large. And we definitely got uh, a lot of help on that front. And I think the world is a little more open on that front today than it used to be even when I was at YC. I think it was easier, right? I, we actually fundraised all our 
following fundraising rounds fully on Zoom, right? Uh, until I, started, I had never met my investors for quite a bit of time. So I think things have changed, but network and investment was a big thing. I think the second thing that YC does really well is put you in that bubble where for three months, your goal is to get to that step, right? That demo day, which is what they called where you present what you've been working on to the world, right? And the very, very traction even, right? Like, how have you been growing? How have the last two weeks been? Where are you compared to the last two weeks? And it's very pragmatic in terms of you can't lie to yourself, right? Like, if you've not been growing, why? Is there something that's going that's wrong? Is it not the right product? How should you pivot around that, right? So that time bubble kind of like sets you up for the right mindset to build. And that's actually a mindset you carry on over time, right? Like that data-driven, I'm looking at how we're doing very deep into the data and how we're growing is something you carry on after that. So, I mean, it was super beneficial for us, apart from the fact that we moved so much faster because we were you know, locked in an apartment for three months, just working day and night. All of the other things worked out really well for us. I'm very, very thankful for voice. Was that opening track from the Beatles therefore a good representation or a good lyric for you? Was it literally, you know, hard day's night there because it was 24-7 weekends included? You know, finished pretty late last night as well. So fast-growing companies, you know, definitely are more of the work than the life in the work-life balance. And uh, there's definitely concessions you need to make, you and your family, when you're building a that type of companies. And uh, But, you know, sadly or fortunately for me, it's what I like. Uh, that's what drives me. So... Uh, I don't even think of it that way. I, I think of it as every minute I get to spend on my product, on my team is, is something I'm excited about and I'm, I'm happy about. And then um, question here, which I'm really sort of working around anyway in the last two, but just expanding from David uh, Barzile here. You said at the start that you, you know, you've bootstrapped your previous companies and some had been successful and, and what have you. What was it about deal that made you decide why Combinator and that you're really going to go for funding series one and, you know, if you get successful as to where are you now? Series three, I think. So you see, yeah, we've raised about $200 million so far. You know, transparently, the ability to raise funds. At the time, I wish I would have been able to raise funds with my first product. Uh, my first product, I tried, just didn't have the traction, didn't have the right narrative, didn't have the team, didn't have the things in place to get there. And I mean, you know, going back, maybe I could, I for sure could have done a better job at it. But uh, my mindset and my way of living aligns really well with the grow as fast as you can and invest a lot and move really, really fast. That's very much my mentality. So uh, the answer is I wish I could have. I just, I guess at the time, failed to do it. Okay. I put a, a couple of predictions out before this one, sort of firstly to myself, and then um, I did a wee post on it. And I was going to test a couple of those. So networking is already mentioned. You said this is incredibly important. How important is purpose? Now, what I mean by that is there's a lot of talk out there at the moment that you've got organizations and leaders that really focus on purposeful strategies. Yes, profit's important. You need to make profit, but there's got to be some, you know, core underlying goal. And you see that on a, you know, I don't know if it's Google organizing the world's information or Tesla making sustainable transport commonplace, or here we've got Discovery helping people live longer and insurer. What's your sort of take on that? Did you think this was a purposeful endeavor? Is it just purely for making money because you thought there was a gap in the market? Yeah, I'm really, I mean, at a very personal level and the way I was brought up, I'm not very money driven. I, I am definitely excited about the success of the company and where it's going and the idea that we're building a huge company. I think a lot of those companies, to some extent, need to build purpose as well because the best people are driven by mission. One of the luxuries we have at Zill is we've got a very clear mission that a lot of people are associated to, right? Like you said you were from the UK, um, right? You've You've been in different countries, right? You, you have family that have worked in different countries. You've immigrated into different countries. So you, you know that talent is everywhere. You know that a lot of people, I don't know about you personally, but you wish you could have been hired by Apple in the US and apply regardless of being in, you know, in, in San Francisco or in um, Cupertino, I think that's where the headquarter is, right? So the luxury we have from a mission perspective is that everybody understands that if we make it easy for companies to hire anyone anywhere, it's going to open so much doors, right? It's going to redistribute wealth. Uh, and on the flip side, right, what I like to think about is if we can help 100 million people get jobs at the best companies in the world, then we would have built something amazing, right? Something incredible. So I think purpose is very important. I think I have the luxury that purpose is very intrinsically deeply rooted into what the company does. And everyone looks at it and say, I get it. And 
if it's something you understand, if it's something you felt. You know, I love working with people that have immigrated, for example, in the US, right? Because they struggled through, and I've, I've had it myself, like the visas and the immigration policies and all that, like to work for the best companies. Some people have to go to the US and get an MBA to then give, be able to get the right like visas and stay and work for those companies. So a lot of people, they emphasize, you know, like, I wish I could have stayed back home in India and got the job from those companies, right? So yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm very, very driven by our mission. I'm very excited about it, that's for sure. Okay, so so purpose is key. You've had the experience from doing, you know, startups, some successful and and less successful, you know, you know, beforehand. What was the kind of, you know, the next pieces that you think, especially in those first six months, which were kind of fundamental to driving the future success where you're at today? You know, the things that uh, you observed that you were able to do, others don't. They fall by the wayside. Yeah, I mean, you know, I had a bit of success before. I had never seen what we're experienced today. I don't think a lot of people have, right? Like this is, <laughs> this is something that's uh, complete that you cannot plan for, right? This type of growth and how the company evolves and how things happen is is actually really unique for me, right? I'm looking at this and I'm seeing this organization evolve into something amazing, and I'm seeing amazing people working on it and building it. You know, maybe next time if I get to to build another company of that size, I could have predicted a little more and be a bit more ready on that front. But yeah, definitely not that type of success uh, for sure. To your point, I think there's there's a few things. Um, so for example, I think one thing that works really well for me and Troy is we're really good at dividing roles, right? Like. I'm doing X, Y, and Z, and she takes care of sales, right? And um, the division of skills and responsibilities in the business has worked tremendously well with us. Like, this is one of the best things about our relationship. The second thing is hiring, so hiring the best people, specifically early on where things are shaky, things are blurry, you don't know where you're going. Like, having people that are in here with you to get something built and are excited and uh, believe in you, right? Because again, that's that's what they believe in at that time. They don't. You you can't even formalize your mission that well yet, right? Like believing in you and and ready to pull you into into some because we definitely were at some point into some weird places, right? Into some weird places from a product perspective, from a from a work perspective. That's super important. Grid and work. You're gonna you know fundraising. The first time I fundraise, you're gonna get a ton of rejections. And same thing for customers. Like people are gonna tell you. Your practice useless. Why do I need it? I can already do that. I can already do this, right? So like uh, a lot of grit and commitment. That's why it's important for you to believe in your in what you're building, right? Because if you don't believe in it, you get those so many times that it's really easy to get discouraged. So, you know, looking past that and just like keeping your stubbornness in terms of like wanting to build that while still being pretty open in terms of like iterations that are needed around like flexibility around how you should build it to get to the solution you want. And the last one I would say is work hard. No one's going to do the work for you. Every minute throughout, I mean, still now, right? Because we're still a very young company. The organization is like two point something years old, right? Every minute you spend is worth so much. Like, you know, I know a lot of people are very into uh, the idea of a work-life balance. I think it's great. I think for a founder uh, at this point, if you're trying to build a company and you want this to be a fast, high-growth startup, you need to be considerate of the fact that you're going to have to work hard. Then you need to put in the time and put in the work. What was your kind of view on making mistakes? I know in the corporate world, for example, they're they're not great at making mistakes. There seems to be this kind of inherent view that if you spend long enough time planning and thinking and discussing and researching and analyzing, that you're going to release some amazing product onto the world, which um, is going to be fantastic. Obviously, they normally take a nosedive. What, what's your kind of you know take on on making mistakes to learn as you're building out through the process? We make mistakes every day. You have to be you know thoughtful about what is the impact of the mistakes you're making, right? And I, I think one of the things we do well is we think through the work we do, the product we do, and like if we feel like it's the right solution, we go for it. One of our principles is you know we don't we don't try to understand whether some solution is optimal we just want to understand if it works and if it's gonna make our customers happy and then we ship it we fix it we iterate so yeah my answer to that is uh the only way to learn is making a mistake right make a mistake on that deal lose it for the for the right reason actually i i without giving too much data i remember losing a deal early april and it got me so mad that it actually reshaped the whole roadmap into a whole big product that we shipped right after 
And that was a mistake for me, right? I was being very stubborn. I was like, I don't want to build this. I think it's a mistake. And it is that one deal we lost to a competitor at the time. That doesn't happen very often either. So, and I, it got me so mad that I just like sat down. I was like, okay, that doesn't work. We need to ship this. This is the reason we lost it. Stop being stupid, Alex. Just build it. And now this is actually like 30% of our revenue. So, you know, this is how you learn. This is how you iterate. And no, no one's, there's no way you're going to get it right. Most of the things you're going to do, you're going to get them wrong. But at least if you do, just make sure you iterate and make sure you're always customers and don't do something about thinking about your customers and uh, how it's going to impact them, right? Like that'd be the biggest mistake. As long as you've analyzed everything and you're like, my customers are going to be happy, I think, right? Then then that's how you kind of, in my opinion, deploy ideas and make mistakes. So you think about your customers, you're, you're willing to make mistakes. How does that feed into, you know, when you build out your sort of product roadmap and you're developing the, the features, is there a, a technique that you use? You're having the discussion. Someone says, I think this feature is going to be really cool. You know, is it like a Fibonacci scale where you're sitting there and, and trying to work out, yeah, this is taking six months of effort or it's a one week piece and we can load it. It might break a few things, but at least we'll get some iterative feedback from customers. Is there a formal way that you do it or is it a lot more loose than that? Because your relationships with your team, are you're talking every day and it's a kind of a lot more intuitive. Yes, if something's going to take six months, then it's probably, uh, this probably something wrong there nothing should take more than that at least in SaaS, nothing should take more than you know a couple of weeks to ship at least some form of a minimal version of the product that you can show to your customers you know there's a few things first uh, we're very customer driven you know i think the flip side of having such a high growth is that our customers are very demanding and rightfully so right they're trusting us with their team so uh, we definitely have a lot of things that we need to build for them from requests from them and that definitely drives our roadmap more than anything else um, and then when it comes to thinking through the products, it's all about high impact, right? Like how many customer tickets you get for that? That's like 20% of your customer tickets sold for that, right? It's going to make the experience that much better. Or one of the things that's very convenient about Dale, and I strongly recommend like people to build something that they use. One of the very convenient things about Dale is that we use it ourselves, right? 200 people in 43 different countries, we use our own product. And that helps us understand what we need, which is a lot of the times what our customers need, right? And as we evolve, by the way, from being a startup into becoming a bigger like bigger company, we see some of the bigger need arise that some of the bigger corporates that we're working with today need as well, right? So that's that's a blessing, right? The fact that my engineers are working on a product that they used to get paid every month means that they're going to make it great for themselves, right? And that is definitely like the other parts. Like what do we feel we really need for our workflows, for our, for our customers' workflows? And then, you know, we throw in a couple of wildcards every now and then, right? So, you know, Adil, for example, we have a product that's uh, a card that people can use from all around the world and actually spend their money on. That was kind of a wildcard where we knew people wanted it, but they didn't know they wanted it just yet. So we have a couple of wildcards we throw in the world from time to time. <laughs> So that's, so that's a great example in terms of a test it. If anyone uh, doesn't know, I was having a look. So um, if you contract via deal, you don't have to extract the money that you're paid from the company that's paying you into your bank account. You can leave it with a deal account and deal will very kindly um, issue you a, a visa back credit card, which you can use to draw on you know, around the world. So I thought that was a really smart idea. Another one that was in there that was great is which currency you get paid in. If you want to be paid in Bitcoin or dollars or rand, uh, you take the pick as the contractor. So taking either of those as an example, how did you go from someone's come up with the idea to actually getting something out there to test whether people would be interested in this? Because this is blue ocean uh, space. You know, I've never heard of anyone giving contractors the ability to just every day, just randomly decide what currency, whether it's even yeah. a cryptocurrency or how, no, not even get paid, leave it with, you know, that, that's novel. I'll tell you the truth. That that feature is very core to our product. That was at like the very beginning at the core of what we, we wanted to do, right? That deal. So it's not like we woke up one day and we say, hey, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna change that. That that was something that was always there from the very first version of the product. So you've got this idea. What was it that made you believe that people would want this? Because so many ideas are out there. I mean, it sounds great. Yeah, it's gonna be wonderful. And then you release it, and no one uses it. But here so, it's actually core and it is a phenomenally good add-on. So no one used it at the beginning. Uh, you know, the very the real story of Dill is the first version, no one used it. And they used it for like sporadic things. And then suddenly one of my friends, I remember, used the product for the first time and spent like $8,000 on this. And I was like, why? Like, what did you do? Why did you do this? Why did you use it that way? And that's actually how, how things kind of happened there. For me, it was, it was it's conviction, right? Like, again, you know, I was paying my team. I was paying them from that terrible bank UI, right? Then 
you know, some of them were not getting their money on time. And some of them were asking me, Alex, can you pay me via PayPal, right? Or can you pay me via in crypto? Can you pay me on that? So I was like, why, why do they have to depend on what are the means that my company can pay into, right? Why, why do I, you know, the world is such a big place and there's so many payment methods that are more tailored to one country over another, right? It was very obvious to me that I was giving them a very, like a terrible experience and they had their own preferred method, but at the same time, very realistically, there was no way for me to like cover all those payment methods regardless of their country, right? So that part was actually always like tied to deal, right? At the very, very beginning, we thought, the idea that we wanted to tie some form of contracts to a payment, right? We looked at the way the word was shaped and we were like, it's funny because you sign contracts offline and then you pay people another way and they're never really tied together, right? They're never really brought together. So that was the main idea. And then after that, we realized, hey, but that person doesn't want to get paid like that. That's a terrible experience for their country, right? <clears throat> I don't know if you ever paid someone in Russia, but if X and Y and Z don't match exactly to how the bank should receive it, your money gets stuck for like months, right? So like, it, that was at the very beginning. That was the really core of what we wanted to do at Deal. So it's a little harder to like retractively say, how did we think of that one versus maybe like our cash advance product, which is like, hey, we want to give you like 30 days advance on your salaries. And we're, you know, we're going to give you a super amazing rate because we know that you have a contract. We know how long this contract is for, all the different parameters. That is a lot more thought out than, hey, we want to give those people abilities that they don't have. Like the, the very core of the company is a bit different. It's more like at the very on, early on when you brainstorm about it. If I was looking at this, one of the things that would put me off instantly from trying to do this would be the contractual legal structures in all the different countries. So you've got this idea. It's a great platform. In theory, we can go and do this. And then someone pipes up and says, yes, but Russia has very different employment terms, compliance terms, contractual terms to South Africa, to America. They've got regulatory challenges in how you pay people, how you onboard people. What disclosures have got to go through? I'd be turned off in the sense I just imagine these volumes of research and, and paper that you've got to go through country by country to make sure that the platform's compliant for all the different combinations. I'm employing in South Africa, the contractors in India. I'm working somewhere else, my employers in America. How, how did you get around that? And, and maybe why didn't it put you off? But how did you get around that to be allowing you to scale? I think regulations and all of those nitty-gritty work you need to do from an operational perspective or legal perspective is what creates some of the best companies. So, you know, the way I look at it is all of the work we're doing there is so valuable that it's 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 our mode, right? When people ask me, like, what is one of the modes of the companies? All of the works, all of the workflows, all of the entities that we've created to enable you to hire someone in another country, right? So that actually, like, gets me excited, right? The idea that I can work on things and the more work I put into it, the more cash I put into it, the more time I spend on it, the more valuable the company is, the more, the simpler I make your life, right? You're, you're saying you're worrying about that. Well, good thing. You don't have to worry about it, right? You just click a couple of buttons and you don't have to, right? Like, this is to me where the most valuable companies are created, right? Because if something was easy to build, I mean, already in my space, there's definitely a couple of companies that are trying to build something similar to us. And, you know, the thing that it's hard when you don't have the purpose, the mission and the foundation of like, why are you building it? Which we have, so I'm not too bothered. But at the same time, if it was just like a couple of buttons and no real deep understanding or solving of some form of uh, legal complexity there, then the value of it would be a lot lower. I love this type of businesses, like the old school things or heavily regulated things that are waiting for disruptions. It, to me, usually what ends up being the, some of the biggest companies in the world. And how do you keep up to date with those contracts? And, you know, you've got 150 countries that or maybe it's more now but at least 150 countries that you're able to support and i think your team size isn't much bigger than 150 people uh 200 now actually but um yeah so i mean you know processes processes automations legal reviews tons of lawyers on retainer like <laughs> it's that, that, like that's uh, what i was looking for so it's the lawyers on retainer sitting in each uh, of the jurisdictions but the processes of uh, having the team that reviews these types of contracts that reviews these types of structure that has like you know regular catch-up and regular pings and quarterly reviews and follow regulations and changes like it's it's like a beautiful organized mess inside of the company that knows that is like a like a clock like every x everything something happens we're you know mexico changed their regulations completely on how we do our employment model not the contractor side the employment side right the day that change happened we applied for the registration we had our contracts updated and our employment contracts updated right and i mean the logistics of businesses like this is exactly what make them take right if you look at uber if you press the button and the driver came or if the older infrastructure and logistic wasn't there then then the, the product is not great it's 
such that it's at the core of our product, making sure that we do this right is why you engage with me. So whatever effort, whatever operational processes, money I need to put in order to do right by my customers and by regulations is, is literally why we exist. It's right from, from a pure like engagement to customers perspective. I don't know if it's too early, but are you getting a sense over the last couple of years about how companies themselves, your clients are actually changing as well? You know, we can come back to how you've set up and, and you manage remote teams, but the clients that you're dealing with are quite often very traditional, quite large. They're used to offices and full-time contracts and then along comes COVID. So they've had to go and make some pivots. What, what sort of changes did you see during that two years and what do you think is going to sustain yeah, and you know, that is actually one of the reasons we are useful for companies, right? Like the reason those companies not having a real process or tools for this because it's not something they used to do is the reason we as a young company can come into some of the bigger organizations and sell them a product that they actually don't have, right? So I actually really enjoy the fact that we're working. So we do have like from SMBs all the way to publicly traded companies, but I love the bigger enterprises because they don't have anything in place and we we get to be like the tool that they de facto use today, which you know for most companies, when you go see an organization like those, they already have products, right? Like it's really hard to penetrate the HR stack of the corporate, right? Um, so I actually really appreciate that. So I mean, for us, it's been really cool seeing you know I can't really name it, but there's definitely a lot of like large corporations that one of their employees was going back home, right, due to the pandemic, and they had to find a solution. And when they see how easy it is, they're like, oh, okay. I can deploy that into more departments. I can hire more people. And I think I've seen a couple of accounts grow from like that one person that relocated into hundreds of people, right? Or, you know, those companies that have their engineers back in Canada that says, look, I have my best friend. He's one of the best engineers because like, let's try to hire him. And, you know, the whole, the, the department looks at that. No, we can't. It's going to be so hard. Stay to your perimeter. And you know, the engineer brings in, was like, look, I can do that. It's very easy. It's as simple as an invoice. You don't have to do anything. It's been really fun to see how, when you get your fit in the door and you show how easy it is, people become so much more open-minded and start more aggressively considering that. So if there's one thing I'm very proud of, I mean, there's a couple, but the, the fact that we are changing the way some of the bigger companies, they're very set in their framework because compliance, right? Regulation, compliance, how am I going to do it? How do I deal with it? Like we make the process simple enough for them to say, let's do it. Like, you know, we just did like one another use case that we've seen quite often that also grad like graduates into more is we're doing this MA. We're not gonna keep the company there, but they have this talent there. How do I deal with that? Right. Like this is another use case of like being pushed into an organization, not because they wanted it, but because they had to find a solution. And then organically growing into, oh, okay, so I can do that, I can do that. And then growing, growing their workforce like that. It's yeah, I'm, I love seeing that. But do you think you're going to see more companies really reach out? I mean, as you mentioned earlier, you're you're already global with a distributed workforce. So it's like, why wouldn't you do that? Here's company X sitting in Joburg or London just going, well, I'm used to having the people in the locality and paying them the salary that you need for Joburg or for London. Do you think they're going to actually be willing, able to go and then say, hey, well, it's not just by less deal. I'm really open now to start hiring people, whether it's full time or on a contract or based on a milestone sort of, uh, you know, or specific task or a thousand and one other things. I don't care whether they're in Bangalore, you know, or Timbuktu. And now that we've got these platforms, this was the only thing that was holding us back, actually. So we're uh, really going to go and start to go and do a lot more of this. Or do you, do you think it's still sticky? We're going to mean revert post-COVID. Everyone goes, gosh, that was uh, an interesting two years. Let's start hiring nah. people back into the office. I mean, I'm biased, right? But I, I think uh, a lot of people have realized that, again, talent is everywhere. For the best of your companies, you should just try to hire the best talent. And, you know, a lot of people are going back into hybrid mode, not only the office. A lot of people I know will not go back to their job if they have to go back into the office as well, right? So I think uh, I think we haven't solved everything. I think there's a lot of different things we need to solve to be an even better place for companies to feel more at ease. You know, definitely some more forward-thinking companies there. Um, you know, are willing to be adaptable and like come, right? Like usually when you're a bigger company, you pay this for that person, but what are you going to pay for that person there, right? And, we're, you know, we're working on that, for example, aggregating more data so we can open our data so the companies can understand what doesn't, you know, engineering IC1 should be earning uh, in that location versus the location you're into. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of things we need to fix in order to be, to make it easier and easier. But I think uh, the marketplace is getting more competitive than ever. Companies are 
generally after two years of being so flexible, right, from a workforce perspective, I think a lot of HR managers and people have understood that they can make things happen uh, and the tools to make those things happen are being created. And I think more, most of them are excited rather than scared, which is, yeah, my, my bet is most, most companies are going to have quite a bit of their workforce distributed over the next few years, that's for sure. So tell me about the, the model then, because um, I've spoken to quite a few CEOs over the last months. I don't have answers for them, you know, by the way. They keep asking for answers, but I don't think anyone has got the answers. But their problem is that they're okay. They've got Zoom and they've got Teams and the company hasn't fallen over and died, especially if they're kind of in the services industry, not manufacturing. But their problem is that it's difficult to now get a handle on who's doing what, who's motivated, you know, that kind of middle management layer that are so important for networking and making sure that things happen and translations from the board to the exco get all the way down to the rest of the organization so they're they're struggling to get a handle on how to you know uh, interface those kind of water cooler moments where you've got those conversations which are the kind of the, the dna of an organization and they're also struggling to motivate people they're struggling to work out how people stay behind their brand and want to work and don't get lost in all of the thousand and one things that you might go off and get distracted by when you're working from home. How, how do you manage your uh, workforce? Because you're distributed right from the start by keeping them motivated and, and know who's doing what and, and who to go and really look after. Yeah, I think there's a few things. The first one is um, we trust our team. Like you said, I'm not going to check if they're doing their work. That's really not something I can do. I, we trust them on executing. And I think one of the things a lot of companies need to change is to be more output driven, not hours driven, right? What are the goals of the quarter? What are the KPIs of the quarter? Are we executing on that? What are the failure points on executing on those numbers and on those KPIs, right? And that is the way to measure an organization to me, regardless of whether you're distributed or not. So if you embrace that mindset, right? If you start looking at things from an output perspective, then you don't need to know if John worked from nine to five or nine to eight. You need to see what did John ship and how much did that contribute to getting to the KPIs of the organization, right? So my answer to that is if you hire people to count their hours, you're probably hiring wrong, at least in like the white collar workforce, for sure you're hiring wrong, right? You're hiring smart people that can do the job, that can be efficient and that get to the, the output that you've decided and the goals that you've decided as an organization to, to get. And it, it might sound fancy, but at the same time, we're very cutthroat, right? Like you don't contribute to the KPIs, you you know, you don't have the right output, <laughs> you, you won't be at there anymore, right? So Adopting the mindset of we trust you, we trust you to do your work, and we measure everything so that everything you do ties back into a KPI of the company and the mindset of, hey, because we trust you, we expect you to deliver. And if you don't deliver, then you know, deal is maybe not the right place for you. It has worked really well for us. And you know, I'm not a, you know, I wish I could spend more time with my team and we're working on doing different things like company retreats and smaller retreats within within departments of the organization. And, we have our all hands every week and our product meeting every other week. So we're definitely doing our best. And there's a lot of things we need to learn from like a culture perspective and how to make things better. But for sure, trust is the main factor that I would highly recommend most organizations to shift from. And I know middle management has a hard time with that. Um, so you know, there, there needs to be some uh, transformation on that front for sure. How are you trying to make people feel part of the family, I suppose? You know, going back to where we started, I don't want to put answers out there, but I suppose purpose is helpful because it gives you something to bind around. It must be a lot more interesting working for a company that's purposeful and isn't just chasing revenue targets and margin targets and, you know, sales targets. Yeah, it's, it's exciting to chase uh, revenue targets when you're going fast. You'd be surprised. People are quite driven by that as well. <laughs> but, uh, you know, purpose is important for sure. Kindness to the people. Right, caring for the people, be as much there for, for them as you can is important. Realizing that uh, giving people the ability to work from wherever they want is a huge net positive for a lot of people. So some people it's not, but for a lot of people, it's a huge net positive and it's an advantage, right? Uh, it's a recruiting advantage, that's for sure. Um, so, so understand that people are, a lot of people appreciate that, right? It doesn't only play against you. And, you know, business, family, you know, I think there's a fine line there, but uh, I think a lot of people are excited about the business and the mission that it's solving and keep on talking about your mission, keep on talking about why you exist as a company beyond the revenue target and with the revenue target is 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 how we've done things and it works for us, right? The people, but we, we do have, you know, we do hire, our recruiting flow is very special in a way that we hire people that are very driven 
and that want to be working from home and therefore want to be independent on that front and value you know, the, the balance you get from working from home, right? Um, rather than staying in the office, like, you know, sometimes at a factoring startup, you're going to work really hard, but rather than working really hard at an office in the middle of nowhere, maybe you're working hard from home and then you get to go to bed or be with your kids after. And just generally, just the flexibility of uh, being able to take your daughter in the morning to the pediatrist, if you need to, uh, I don't know if pediatrist is the right word, but uh, to, the, to the right place uh, for a kid's doctor when you need to is, is something that's super valuable. So what I'm trying to say here is, Culture comes from the leaders of the organization and how you see the business, and it ripples down into the people you hire and how you know the company reacts to that and how you behave with it. So it's a much deeply rooted question to the top layer and how you triple it down into the rest of the company. Would you say, um, <laughs> let's have a bit of fun with this one, shall we? You know, you're obviously a very hierarchical company. All decisions go through you at the uh, the top of the tree. There's nothing that happens out there without your uh, particular say it's i'm getting better at that actually i'm getting better at that there's more and more decisions that are taken without me so you'd be surprised are you are you finding that hard though because obviously as a founder when it's a small team you can take all the decisions now it's 250 people across different time zones with different issues you'd be working you, you, there's not enough hours in the day how, how are you trying to go and mold that model as you get bigger so that you avoid the pitfalls of a lot of the incumbents with their hierarchies and committees so I don't know, are you trying yeah. some of the more quirky ones like Holacracy, you know, something like you might get at Zappos or is it quite traditional actually what you're doing? So I think we're not traditional because we're very like output driven. So we ship a lot, we build a lot, we push things a lot. We're very like numbers and data driven. So on that front, like I still have a pretty good understanding of what's going on in the business. I think um, we're lucky that we hired great people that we trust and therefore I feel like weights are taking off my shoulder given how they're executing on that. From time to time, I look at something and say, what happened here and go a little crazy. But, you know, I try to, to lower that down as much as I can as well. But no, overall, I think, you know, it's part of my job, right? Like, you know, every, the company grows, people grow, and I need to grow as a person and as a leader as well. And part of that is uh, knowing when to let go of things and how to grow as a person and trust people to take over things that, you know, I used to be the person building most of the products. And now we have a head of product. And is so much better than me, right? So I actually was a bottleneck, right? Removing myself from being a bottleneck in key decisions, in key workflows is uh, is my new job, right? And uh, feeling comfortable and hiring the best people in the world to take that over is the second part of the job, right? So hire the best people in the world, let them do their work, remove yourself is quite literally my day-to-day job at the moment. I'll try to pick up on a question from uh, Johan here. It's probably not going to be quite how he's asked it, but I'll do my best. But if you think about how now this this explosion of opportunity to work anywhere in the world has occurred, and it's now been uh, the catalyst has been COVID. So use South Africa as example. We're going to go and uh, used to be looking to go and employ, I don't know, 10 South Africans in Joburg. Now I look at it and go, oh, what do I need to do that for? You're going to use deal. I'm going to go and get five developers up in India and six people over in, I don't know, Haiti, whatever the hell. And it's so easy to do now. But if I was a government or a regulator, I'd start to be getting worried about that because I'm worried I'm suddenly going to start losing the opportunity for growth and for labor markets in my own country because it's more competitive, particularly in places like America, for example, where it suddenly becomes a lot easier for them to employ people in low cost locations. They they haven't really liked that model in what's happened in manufacturing for the last couple of years. So. I suppose, are you, are you already seeing um, changes in governments trying to tighten up and make it harder for people to go and employ remote workforces for their organizations? Or do you expect that to start happening in some countries? Yeah, I mean, it definitely varies. Um, that's something I'm actually quite interested in. And I'll spend a lot of time in over the next few years, for sure. But I mean, there's two motions, right? There's like the tier one countries that exactly like you said, right? France, so I'm Germany, and I heavily, heavily regulate these industries because of wanting to have the IP ownership created by my best talent within the country, right? Or, or things like that. Uh, on the other side, on the flip side, you have countries with lots of talents like the Ukraine or Colombia. They're doing the exact opposite. They understand the opportunity for their country and for their people to get jobs at some of the best companies, right? And uh, they, they make it easy, right? The Ukraine has made it easy for people to work in a compliant way with people outside of the, of, of the country. Colombia is training tens of thousands of people to become software engineers so they can work with countries. 
from with companies from other countries and bring wealth, right? Like literally bringing wealth instead of you know working as a software engineer for a Colombian company for a thousand bucks or thousand five hundred bucks, you'll get paid for five thousand and bring that wealth into the country as well. So redistribution of wealth is something I'm excited about rather than scared of. And I'm hoping a lot of people in a lot of countries take advantage of that to say, hey, we've got amazing talent. That was actually a thing I learned in history when I was a little younger in France, like this idea of brain drain, right? Like the best talents in the world used to go to the United States in order to work for the best companies in the world. And countries used to lose their best talents because they had to fly and they had to go there to be at the best universities and work for the best companies. Well, guess what? Like the best, a lot of the best universities today are on the internet. You can learn how to code and be amazing from your living room in Johannesburg or in Nigeria and just learn how to be an amazing software engineer and then you can get to work for the best companies in the world. I actually think that democratization of knowledge and that redistribution of opportunities is super exciting rather than worrying, if anything. Thanks, Alex Lawrence. Welcome back. Yeah, I mean, the discussion has been absolutely uh, really exciting and fascinating. And I think that, um, you know, just to echo what Alex was saying, Cole, I mean, sitting in South Africa, and if you look more globally at Africa, you know, the girth of skills that sit in our territories is just unbelievable. And, you know, the, the economies in some areas are obviously struggling. So the ability to actually, you know, give these talent pools uh, opportunity to engage with worldwide companies, I think is potentially tipping point stuff. And I think that, you know, the enablement of these processes utilizing smart technology is just going to make this more and more seamless. So I think we know the world of work is changing uh, whether it's remote, whether it's contracting, whether it's compliance, or whether it's payment, I think it's just an unbelievable opportunity for all of us to harness, especially the youth in countries. You know, the youth are unfortunately mostly affected by job loss, by unemployability. So I think the, to be able to give youth the opportunity to engage with global opportunities is absolutely wonderful. And uh, Alex, I'm sure you agree with that. So, yeah, <laughs> I think it's, uh, listen, I think it's been a great session. I see that we're running out of time. I just want to, again, thanks, Alex, for your time. I know that uh, you're pretty busy at the moment, but it's really, it's been so interesting just to hear you. And uh, we've had quite a few people on the call this morning. Just uh, shout out a couple of thanks. Craig Katz, Workforce Holdings, Adrian Kruger from Nuvatech, Steve Van Koller from EIH. Thanks so much, guys, for joining uh, look forward to chatting to you guys shortly. Please be on the lookout for the third in the deal series, which we'll be talking about and announcing shortly and most probably in the next two weeks. We're looking to incorporate some nice debate from the rest of Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, uh, Morocco, Ghana. These are places that are really, really interesting from a remote and a compliance and a payment point of view. Last time around, I finished off with my parting shot, which was a saying from Winston Churchill, never miss a good crisis. Today I'm talking about uh, Dalai Lama and he said, if a problem has a solution, we must work to find it. If it does not, we need not waste time thinking about it. And that's about it. Colin and uh, Alex, thank you so much for your time and we'll see you next time around. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.